From 11FS, this is Fintech Insider News, and this is your host, Ross Gallagher. We've just said goodbye to this week's podcast guest after a really brilliant show, getting to grips with some of the biggest stories, including Goldman Sachs' Apple Card woes. Really a lot to unpack with that one. Cashed-up banks looking to acquire fintechs in the UK. Real optimism, actually, around this one. And is bringing cake into the office as bad as smoking? I mean, what do you think? We get into all of this and much more. But first, a few brief messages, so don't go anywhere. Hello and welcome, LFG people, to Fintech Insider. Watching Insider, 11FS Spotlight. 11FS Explores. Open mic night. After dark. Through our podcasts, videos, newsletters, and live events, we have a direct line to a truly global fintech community. So if you're looking to sponsor and collaborate on content that connects with everybody from fintech beginners to the biggest VCs, then chat to our team at sponsors at 11fs.com or visit 11fs.com to find out more. Long live the community. and welcome to episode 698 of Fintech Insider. I'm Ross Gallagher, and I'm joined this week on Fintech Insider News by some great guests to break down this week's biggest stories in fintech and financial services. Firstly, it's a Fintech Insider News debut for my co-host David Barton Grimley, Global Strategy Director here at 11FS for Embedded Financial Services. David, welcome. Great to have you. Maybe you can give our listeners an introduction both to you and maybe the some of the things you do at 11FS. Thanks, Ross. Hi, everyone. I mean, as you can imagine from the job title, I spend a lot of my time thinking about embedded finance um, and banking as a service. So um, we help um, a lot of banks, fintechs, retailers, software businesses worldwide try to figure out this thing we call embedded finance. Awesome. David, I find it reassuring that you spend a lot of time thinking about embedded finance. So keep up the good work. <laughs> um we have a return to Fintech Insider for Arena Chichkina, the Chief Marketing Officer at Toons. Arena, listen, great to have you back. Maybe again, you can tell us a little bit about you and a little bit about Toons. All right, fantastic. Hi, David. Hi, Ross. Hi, Natasha. I'm really excited. Very happy to be joining you guys. Uh, I'm a very big fan, I must say that. Uh, 11FS and Fintech Insider have been my favorite fintech shows and uh, the favorite fintech consultant firm. So I was very happy to get the invitation. And uh, I guess a few quick things about myself. I'm a fintech marketeer by profession. And I spent quite a bit of time in payments, which is the space that I love dearly. But I also have some adjacent sort of passion points. I worked in, at one of the Asian super apps, which is called Grab. So I have quite a bit enough of uh, sort of affection for the embedded finance in general and super apps as one of the, the use cases. So we probably have something in common with David here. So I do spend a lot of time reading and well, thinking or um, trying to find and research information, some guest, uh, case studies. Location-wise, I'm based in London now, but so um, obviously I lived in Asia for about eight years until uh, middle of last year. And uh, what I do, I run marketing right now for Tunes, which is uh, Tunes is a B2B payment platform. The company is building a cross-border payments infrastructure, connecting developed markets to the emerging ones, so Europe to Asia and Latin America and Africa and other places around the world. Awesome, Marina. Listen, thank you so much for that. Really great to have you on the show. Um, and thanks for, thanks for jumping in and, and sharing all of your experience and insights. And then last but by certainly no means least, uh, we have another welcome return for Natasha Jones, early stage investor at 
Octopus Ventures. So Natasha, listen, welcome back. Again, great to have you. Maybe again, just like the other guys, just give us a little bit of uh, background, I guess, to yourselves and what a day-to-day looks like for an early stage investor. Yeah, well, firstly, thanks for having me back on the show. I'm at Octopus Ventures, which is an early stage investor focused on Europe. We've invested in some household names now like Depop, Kazoo, and Many Pets. I focus on fintech, hence being on the Fintech Insider podcast. And lots of people do ask me what my day-to-day looks like, and it's really all about finding the next big category in fintech, and then within that, who the category leader is going to be. So either creating that category or shaping that category. So I spend a lot of time speaking to fintech experts, industry leaders, and of course, meeting lots and lots of founders and, and finding out what people are building. Awesome. Thanks, Natasha. Look, great to have you. And look, it's, a, it's an awesome panel, I think, to, to dive into the, the stories that we're covering today. So I guess let's, uh, without further ado, let's get into it. Um, so our first story this week comes from PC Mag. And it concerns Apple Card costing Goldman Sachs over $1 billion in losses. So Goldman Sachs has lost $3.03 billion overall in nearly three years on its group of businesses called Platform Solutions that houses the Apple Card. Bloomberg reports that the credit card made up a significant portion of these losses. Sources told Bloomberg that when the latest quarter's figures are added, Platform Solutions is on track for a total three-year loss of $4 billion. Apple Card is making up more than $1 billion of that figure. Previous estimates inside Goldman aimed for breaking even with the Platform Solutions division by 2022, but now the company is hoping it could do that in 2025. Apple Card was launched in the US back in August 2019. So I guess this story getting... um, Quite a bit of coverage, um, I guess, has come as a bit of a surprise, but an interesting one to to unpack. David, maybe I'll um, come to you first on this one. What were your uh, what were your thoughts? What was your reaction when you read this one? Gosh, there's a lot here, isn't there? Right, like um, Goldman Sachs have been making a lot of waves over the last few years with TXB uh, and Marcus, and of course Apple Cards. But the, it's it's surprising, I think, to see that you have an organization like Goldman Sachs operating in the subprime space. So something like a quarter of Goldman's card loans have gone to customers with FICO scores below 660, which is roughly comparable to something like you would see from a Cap 1 card. So this is, this, is a, this is a very interesting development for Goldman Sachs, and it comes on the back of a lot of controversy regarding the way that uh, DJ Sol has been running some of these divisions um, pretty, pretty hard. It's, a, it's definitely a challenge for them. The other thing is that their loss rate on the credit card loans has hit 2.93% in the second quarter, um, which is just huge. And if you compare this to a lot of their competitors, they're enjoying record repayment rates, right? Because the job market in the US is actually running really hot. So employment is is doing really well. People are repaying their loans. But Goldman is not experiencing this with their, with their credit card base. So you've got to wonder what's going on here. I mean, it looks like they've gone to market with a very generic card. You know, you can get your um, cashback rewards on Apple products. You can also get it on others as well, but you're 3% on, on, uh, on Apple products. So you've got to imagine there's probably a lot of people out there buying Apple products and, and not repaying their loans. So it's a wonder what's going on here. Yeah, it's an interesting one. I mean, the, um, we all know that the, the credit card market in the U.S. is, is, is fiercely competitive. So, yeah, maybe, maybe struggling to differentiate itself in terms of the cashback and the rewards. Um, I'm interested, though, maybe Arena coming to you, to David's point, 
How much is this an issue about you know the the exposure to that sort of subprime segment? And I guess especially in the wake of what we're seeing now with you know personal finances really being hit by the rising cost of living. Well, look, um, the subprime lending is a kind of a logical reason, root cause for that. So I, I looked into the statements, and what I found is that in the credit cards, it's actually even more than a quarter of the, the customers that are actually having those scores below six below six sixty. It's about thirty thirty one percent. Installment products, which are offered by Goldman Sachs, are a little bit more healthy. But I think what we what I can't help but 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 note is that these are these losses are provisional, meaning that this is a forecast of the loss as opposed to an actual loss. So it's based on the forecasted sort of future economic conditions. So basically, the way I read it, as far as I understand it, is that they expect the losses to be very high, and they're being relatively pessimistic about 2023. So it's an expectation of a long-term recession. And a similar expectation is happening when we read the statements from all the other American banks. I, I think what I was looking at also was JP Morgan's expectations of, or loan loss provision have been, uh, you know, on a rise. Uh, they've added 50, 50, around 50% increase from Q3 predictions. So Bank of America is similar. So all of the big major American banks, and I would assume similar predictions, similar forecasting structure would be coming from the European banks as well for, you know, anticipate a recession coming 2023. We don't know how bad it's going to be, but uh, apparently they, you know, they've made some assumptions. Um, well, another thing that I just wanted to add here maybe is um, apart from just the forecasting um, recession, I think it's uh, as, a, as a company that has just started or opened their consumer lending business a few years ago, they are forecasting, they're modeling quite a lot of um, things uh, baking a, a few assumptions into their forecasting models. And, and those are the things about, you know, consumer behavior, the segments that would react to uh, and would kind of uh, apply for cards. And I think uh, they apparently, like, they were a little bit off with um, whatever they modeled, meaning that they made less revenue on the whole partnership than they had in initially targeted. So I feel like it's just a little bit of, you know, trying to, obviously, well, there's quite a bit of crystal balling into all of this, in all of this, but there's also a little bit of the know-how, which some banks have and some uh, newer kind of banks probably don't, haven't really built yet. Yeah, I was actually going to echo that completely. What Irina was saying is that I think what's shocking here really is is the size of the loss. I think anyone that's worked in consumer credit, particularly consumer credit that does try and include the subprime, understands that this is almost a necessary evil in order to be able to kind of train and improve those underwriting models to be able to reach customers. And to a certain extent, the size of the loss really is linked to the scale that they've reached. Obviously, David will know this is a, a brilliant example of embedded finance being put in the hands of, of millions of um, you know, Apple device holders. So I think what's interesting here is the scale they've reached. Goldman Sachs do, well, they've publicly disclosed that they think they'll be able to, over time, use data to improve their underwriting and acceptance, but also be able to um, remove those bad actors who are already starting to default on those loans. But, you know, I think Goldman Sachs will probably have to take a look, long, hard look and see whether breaching the subprime is indeed a kind of strategically desirable at this stage. Yeah. And, and look, I think there's also something interesting here around the, the charge-off rates, right? I mean, this is still a relatively young product. I think those charge-off rates tend to be the highest during the, the first few years um, that a product like this is, is, is sort of in circulation. And I think as the, the pool of customers ages and 
Natasha, like you said, some of those bad actors or some of those struggling users start to drop off. I think some of those losses should calm down over time. Um, but I guess zooming out a little bit, David, like how much is Goldman a bit of a, a canary in the in the mine here? I mean, are we facing into a major sort of credit crisis? Yeah, I think it it could be the case that we are. I mean, you know, we know we're facing um, a a recession globally. But like I said originally, I mean, the jobs market in the U.S. is is running super hot. I mean, the repayment rates are much higher than they have been historically. So it looks like Goldman Sachs is underperforming where the market um, is is going. And I also think it's very difficult um, in the credit card industry at the moment because you're competing against other things like buy now, pay later as well. So people are moving off credit cards into other alternative forms of of finance. So it, it, it should be acting as a, as a canary in the coal mine, but I actually wonder whether, in, in fact, that's the case. I wonder whether it's quite an aggressive strategic play from Goldman to have invested so heavily in the late stage of, of the last cycle, essentially. And I, I wonder whether they may have to, as we've been saying, like kind of reassess the validity of that decision. But I also think it, it is an aggressive play, and you know, I don't think it's necessarily a reflection of other lending policies and underwriting policies in the, in the market. Well, I must say that like winning the Apple cards uh, two, three years ago is, well, you know, sort of a really big thing. And it's an iconic partnership that they you can't really ignore, right? You have to go all in and you have to, and this would be probably one of the best bets that wouldn't, they would ever be able to make. So from that perspective, and I, Apple is also historically has been really good in building, you know, the best in class user experience. They've built this card product in such a way that it really removed all the friction and made it, uh, as far as I understand, virtually impossible to miss a payment and well at least uh, sort of forgets about f- missing a payment so meaning, meaning that the good payers they really have a kind of a positive environment to repay early which sort of has a little bit of a disadvantage because it removes the ability to for the bank to make a little bit extra money on those late payment fees or uh, however just thinking about like it brilliantly executed product uh, from the consumer perspective, I think it's applied all of the kind of the best practices that you, the consumers would want to see. The amount of transparency, the user design um, is, is, is really brilliant. I, I, I mean, well, cashback obviously is always, can always be better, but um, I just feel like it's one of the really good examples. Yeah, I, I really like that. You know, we often talk about on this show that um, from the bank's perspective, you know, those customers that sort of like only make the minimum payments and maybe miss the occasional payments, you know, those are sort of the ideal customers, right, from a, a credit perspective. But what you've just described, Arena, I mean, stacks very much in the sort of end user's favor. It's very Apple, isn't it? But, you know, I think we've seen Goldman sort of already shut down like its consumer lending arm through Marcus this year. Maybe, Natasha, from your sort of VC perspective, obviously now we're hearing about the these, these, these huge losses on the Apple card. How do you think Goldman will consider this sort of move into the consumer space? Is it something that they'll still be optimistic about or maybe a little bit more pessimistic and starting to, to consider it a bit of a failure? Yeah, I think as you're saying, Ross, it's always a, a delicate balance between wanting to reach those consumers that are ultimately very profitable and not you know overextending yourself on your lending book. I think Goldman potentially might be sitting in the latter category now. Um, but I don't think that means they'll shy away from consumer lending. But I, 
I don't see them. I think we're going to talk a little bit about M&A coming up, but I, I don't see them making a big play within the M&A space, at least in the consumer lending front. Yeah, nice. Okay. And David, actually, I'm keen to give you the last word on this one, just building on Natasha's point. Do you think we'll ever see Apple Bank? It's an intriguing question, right? Because one of the theses behind Apple Pay is that, you know, they have that day-to-day, minute-by-minute permission um, in a customer's life where you can then interject um, financial services and banking products. And you've seen them move into Buy Now, Pay Later, for example, in 2022 and make that big announcement. But it is an extremely crowded market, right? Everybody is vying for that lending book and trying to find that different way to provide a contextual loan at the point of need. And one of the problems that Apple is going to face into is that all of the other buy now, pay later providers that are out there, A, it's an extremely saturated market, B, it's a race to the bottom when it comes to fees, but also C, a lot of them are pivoting to find new business models and new ways of monetizing the data that they have. Now, Apple, the whole point behind Apple is that it's privacy, right? Apple have a guarantee that they're not going to use your your data for um, nefarious purposes. And what a lot of the buy now, pay later providers are doing is trying to find a way to give you personalized ads, give you personalized recommendations, like Klarna trying to become a one-stop shop for, for shopping, for example. So the business model of something like buy now, pay later and some of these newer embedded finance um, examples are more cross-functional when it comes to data in an ecosystem and less about the wallet that you have in front of you. So either Apple begins to U-turn, which I think it is in some cases, on its um, privacy pledge, or they're going to have to find other ways to to make money. So it's very, very intriguing. You know, like, for example, would they launch a current account? Would they launch a savings account? Um, would regulators globally even allow it? I think when these questions were first asked a few years ago, it was deemed, and the questions were asked about Google as well, right? It was deemed almost as a no-brainer. I mean, Apple and Google are going to come and, you know, they're going to be banks and all the banks are going to go out of business. Um, I don't think that's that's clear anymore. Yeah. No, lots, definitely lots of big questions um, still to answer, but I know... Uh, it's one that we're always sort of interested in and intrigued about. I mean, I could keep talking about this story, but I am going to have to move us on, unfortunately. Our next story comes from City AM with a headline, Cashed Up Banks Ready to Buy UK Fintech Firms on the Cheap in 2023, says VC Chief. So the UK's fintech sector will see a wave of acquisitions this year as cashed up banks and investment firms will swoop in to buy struggling firms on the cheap. This is according to Tim Levine, the chief of London-listed venture vehicle Augmentum Fintech. He said that banks had failed to properly digitally transform over the past decade and would now be looking to shortcut innovation with a flurry of fintech deal-making. Levine told City AM, I would say the vast majority of the hundreds of billions that have been deployed and digital transformation by traditional finance firms has been wasted. Um, Natasha, it seems sensible to come to you first on this one. Um, do you agree with uh, the comments about banks and investment firms making the most of the market downturn? I, I agree that we're going to see a lot of M&A activity. I, I disagree that it's some sort of meat market, you know, with IPOs at kind of an activity low of two decades now and public companies trading also significantly lower, particularly in tech companies as well. You know, the, the appetite, the risk appetite and the valuations at the growth stage, so anything Series C and 
beyond has, has dropped significantly. And that really limits the funding options for companies in that bracket who typically would have snapped up that growth funding, who haven't yet reached profitability. And that does mean that we will see you know, a lot of those established fintechs go into liquidation, but it will also create a demand and an interest from those players to seek an M&A to, to carry on on their mission. And you know, I think from the M&A perspective, from the, the acquirer perspective, that drop in valuation also makes it very compelling to come in at this stage. Yeah, and, and we've seen that play out in the market, haven't we? I mean, we've seen down rounds and we've seen layoffs and all of that sort of stuff. And it does feel like we're coming to the end of that sort of like endless capital being pumped into these businesses and sort of prioritizing growth over profitability. And I guess, look, ultimately VCs want to see a return on their investment, right? So what's your sense? Will, will sort of VCs be happy to see this if it is a trend that we we start to see in a big way? Yeah, I think you know, from my perspective, m is a great exit route for companies, um, particularly if it goes to the right home. We can see startups continue to deliver on their mission. You know, look at um, great examples like Nutmeg being acquired by JP Morgan. I think, you know, frankly, there are some fintech business models that have been shown to not be particularly VC backable things with, you know, small percentage AUM fees. You know, it takes a long time to ramp up, but can be incredibly enticing and exciting to work with a big player, a brand name, to carry on that mission to deliver whatever it might be. So I think from our perspective, you know, we're, we're more than happy for our companies to go to a good home. But, you know, as, as Tim says, I think from a, a financial institution perspective, they've really struggled to compete. I think everyone thought when Mons and Revolut came out, they were like, what's the moat here? It's just, a, it's just an app. Surely banks will be able to roll that out in a couple of months. And, you know, we've been I think we've seen that that's not actually the case at all. So um, I think this is a really good time for collaboration in, in the sector. Yeah, nice, nice optimistic viewpoint. Arena, really interested in your um, your sort of Asian perspective. I know you've worked a lot in the sort of Singapore market. Are we seeing parallels there in terms of what's happening? Yeah, I think it's uh, sort of a global environment. And uh, I think everyone agrees that there will be an, an increase in mergers and acquisitions. Uh, I guess what we are going to see and what I'm really intrigued by is uh, watching where where they come from and whether it's banks buying fintechs, fintechs buying large fintechs, buying smaller fintechs, potentially maybe even fintechs buying banks, which is a very likely scenario in some places. Or uh, another scenario that I would like to see more of is also the mergers when the two kind of adjacent companies with complementary products and services possibly come together in a relatively equal deal. I think fintechs actually have been acquiring big large fintechs, especially the the ones that have managed to accumulate, you know, some amount of cash on their accounts, they are in a very good position right now. Well, I, well, anyone that's raised money in 2021 most likely hasn't hasn't spent most of the, the, their money, their cash, uh, so they would probably be uh, in a very good position to go around and shop around uh, in different parts of the world, looking to either complement their existing solution and enhance their product suite, or possibly expand into new markets, or buy licenses for, or maybe possibly buy. Um, portfolios of existing customers. So there is, that's what I'm go, I'm, I'm hoping to see. With regards to kind of the regional context and Asian uh, industry kind of in, um, landscape, uh, there are a few mega banks in in Asia that could afford buying fintechs. Typically, they uh, tend not to in, engage into acquisitions. Uh, I mean, like, well, say DBS, Standard Chartered, they tend to kind of 
either incubate those fintechs or collaborate with them. They do a lot of partnerships. Uh, so I wouldn't, uh, I don't know whether that will change at all. Uh, but I think a few interesting things that are like all oh, the patterns that we've seen in the past few years is that some really big Asian, especially Chinese fintechs have been acquiring other companies. So I think some examples coming from Ant Financial and um, Alipay come to mind when uh, they've invested or bought quite a few of the mobile wallet operators and somehow rebundled the structure of the services that they were um, sort of putting in the market. So um, I would really want to see more of this kind of rebundling. I know that we've lived through an era of unbundling financial services. Now I think we might potentially see this consolidation and some of those adjacent complementary solutions coming together in into stronger sort of hybrid synergies. I think it's great. I mean, I think, you know, there's from 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 what's being said, I think there's there's cause there's really cause for optimism, right? Around this story and sort of if the market moves in this direction. And I think lots of lots of opportunity for sort of positive collaboration and actually that moving the market forward. I guess, David, I'm sorry to take you in a slightly different direction, but if I were to put a slightly more negative lens on it, I guess. Um obviously sort of the 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 comments around the, the billions and billions and probably hundreds of billions that have been invested in in, in digital transformation at the big banks being a, a flop, I think was the word that was used. I guess, would you agree with that? And then even where we are going to see some of these partnerships or acquisitions, there's no guarantee of success, right, in terms of actually being able to integrate and and, and sort of merge the two together. We've seen that fail lots of times already in the past. Yeah, it's a good point. I mean, the, the story of banks acquiring fintechs or startups or, you know, digital transformation is is a story of failure in the multi-billions. Um, but I think what I am particularly excited about is how banks are beginning to change the model by which they engage with the market. I mean, Irina, you mentioned things like incubating and partnerships, and, and you're seeing this begin to happen, particularly in the embedded finance and banking as a service space. Uh, which I find particularly intriguing. So if you look at, um, in the UK, the example with NatWest and Vidino partnering up, taking a really mature suite of software, creating a new co, going to market and doing something very special. You've got Standard Chartered, Nexus, um, DBS are doing some really cool stuff. So I think banks are beginning to get a little bit more mature in in their understanding of creating greenfield environments, not just from a technical point of view, but also from a corporate structure point of view, where they can partner with complementary firms to bring new services to market rather than trying to figure out how to integrate fintechs or integrate new capabilities into legacy um, monolithic stacks, which fail for all the reasons that we know from culture to IT, data compliance, and and everything like that. So I, I'm personally quite excited um, about what the future looks like for innovation within banking in an, in an embedded finance context. And I think an embedded finance is going to be one of the biggest themes for banks to invest into, partially because it gives them access to new distribution channels that they don't currently have access to, right? You know, at the end of the day, it comes down to customer acquisition. You've got to go where your, where your customers are. And a lot of these banks don't have access to the digital platforms, marketplaces, e-commerce sites, um, B2B lenders, what have you, where future customers actually are. So with a much more mature set of banking as a service capabilities which exist out in the market um, and this understanding of where the customers are, you definitely have an impetus to change the way that acquisitions or partnerships are, are done. So I think that's quite exciting. 
but still early days, I think, and um, and 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 largely un, unproven. To add a cynical tone to it, I think one of the things that um, there's there's a bit of a risk of a domino effect here, right? Because banks might want to own some of this infrastructure, particularly things like banking as a service, rails, but they might not want to own the end customer, which might have a higher risk profile than what a traditional bank might want to accept. And so definitely for the fintech ecosystem, if I was to spin a, a slightly negative tone to all this like lovely collaboration that might happen is that actually we might see a, a, a whole host of startups suddenly lose their infrastructure providers and need to build that out from scratch internally or find different providers which could you know, kind of accelerate a consolidation, so to speak, in, in the space. It's particularly at the early stage where the resources aren't uh, sufficiently high to be able to create big pieces of infrastructure in-house. On the point uh, that David was making, I actually saw some really great examples of the banks in Asia that would uh, start their digital infrastructure, digital transformation on the consumer front, but also simultaneously actually developing API libraries that so kind of platformizing themselves and making themselves more partnerable for the fintechs to plug into those APIs and actually basically replacing the the systems. I don't know, like it could be that I've I, the same has been happening in the UK as well. But but I, I, I really was inspired to see sometimes, you know, API libraries consistent of 200 different use cases from account opening and savings and FX and other different solutions provided by the traditional incumbent banks. And I think this is a, a great example of how sometimes these things are happening. But generally, if I think about like an acquisition as a way to uh, to drive digital transformation, I don't think you would ever sort of acquire a smaller player and uh, you would apply all of their frameworks and processes on the kind of the big parent company. This is really highly unlikely. And I think uh, the way it can be potentially done, the, 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 uh, I recently read a wonderful kind of example or a story about TransferWise. They split their teams into two buckets. One team was team grow quickly. Another one was called team don't screw up. So grow quickly is uh, obviously kind of an, the experimenting innovators and sort of the disruptors, the rebels, and the don't screw ups would be the ones that would be much more sort of uh, risk averse and, uh, you know, a little bit more like compliance, your compliance team. So if you kind of apply that approach and think about the role of that acquired company, they would be obviously the growth drivers. But then you would really need to be clear on which functions really play which role. And uh, maybe there is a, you know, place and role for each individual kind of team and unit. As long as everyone's clear on what is the division, I think that's the most important part. Yeah, it's, it's such an interesting point because I think you're so right it's not just about how you integrate it's also about how you organize and I think there's a lot around like you know making sure that you're doing things not just sort of for the right reasons but then also in the right way and I mean it's hugely complex but I mean really really encouraging I think to hear such a sort of unanimous vote of confidence from our panel so I think one to keep an eye on um okay so from that I am just going to take us to a quick pause we'll be back with you very shortly Here at 11FS, we believe in explaining FS without the BS. That's why we created our 11FS Explore series, videos that break down a complicated financial services topic into something everyone can get their head around, such as non-fungible tokens, buy now, pay later, the cost of living, ESG, circular economies, embedded finance, and inclusive design. Search 11FS Explores on YouTube now. All right, welcome back to the show. Now let's get into our next story, which comes from the FT with a headline, Women Pass 40% Mark on European Financial Services Boards, but Hurdles Remain. 
So Europe's financial services companies are making slow progress on gender diversity. Women account for just over 40% of board seats, despite making up half of the appointments made at that level in 2022. The data in a report released by EY underline the significant road ahead for employers seeking to improve female representation, which campaigners said was only part of the process for a more equitable financial sector. There was a divergence in performance between sectors, with wealth and asset managers sliding marginally backwards by contrast to banks and insurers, which increased their numbers. Research by DBRS Morningstar last year showed just five out of 43 banks in Europe had female chief executives in 2021. So um, I guess a bit of a feeling, maybe Arena, come to you first on this one, feels a little bit like, you know, some progress being made, but, but really still quite a way to go. Well, look, from my perspective, 40% is great progress. I really don't see it as a kind of a, you know, sort of a skeptical negative news. It's, it's positive news. 40% of board seats is amazing. If we can get to 50, that would be great. I think generally my feeling is that, well, I used to not believe in quotas, quite honestly. I think like I felt like quotas are artificial. We should, should all be merit-based. It should be uh, possibly representative of the sort of consumer database or the employee database, like the employee base as opposed to any uh, numbers. But I think then I started to think about it from, you know, okay, let's use a metaphor. Um, think about driving or fastening your seatbelt when you're in a car. We used to, this used to be not a norm, like maybe 20, 20 years ago, no one would do that. Then uh, the new rules would be introduced and gradually it became a norm and you wouldn't even think twice be, uh, until you would just find yourself and all your kids and all of your family members with their seatbelts fastened. I feel like this is a similar thing. We have to maybe sometimes enforce things and set some uh, norms before they become really kind of adopted at scale en masse at all of the organizations and really become the everyone's kind of modus operandi. So from that perspective, maybe introducing these norms would be really that great encouragement. Similar thing, I guess, another metaphor is like waste separation or like maybe other things. So basically, the moment when you introduce a little bit of that framework, I think it helps massively. I think the lack of diversity in the board in general comes from the lack of diversity at senior positions of women in senior positions. And that's a, a different thing. And the quotas, unfortunately, don't always obviously help to solve that. Generally speaking, I think, uh, again, my... Uh, personal belief system or philosophy kind of yeah, uh, about the gender diversity is that we should adopt more diversity of communication styles and leadership styles and behavioral style, styles and then diversity will come whether it's gender cultural backgrounds even you know even thinking about introverts and extroverts they communicate differently women just generally tend to put themselves a little bit less in front of, uh, you know, the rest of the crowd. And that possibly causes some of the, you know, just like less visible, makes makes them less visible. So it's kind of a bigger issue. And I'm probably diving, you know, like it's a, quite a rabbit hole of, you know, getting into all of the different opinions and root causes and cultural, cultural norms. But generally, yeah, I feel like uh, leadership representation is, is going to be important, not just from gender, but all sorts of other... Uh, 
all the other different groups should be should be part of the the leadership teams, and it will create massive be benefits not just from the kind of uh, culture perspective and uh, kind of inclusivity perception, but actually just from the point of view of making sure that uh, we build products with uh, all the different. Um, uh, well, I guess, perspectives in mind, um, keeping in mind not just the profitability, revenue and growth, but also sustainability and even, you know, well, all of the other factors. Responsible behavior is something that is typically not very often becomes kind of part of your core KPIs, especially in the fintech and financial services space. Apart from kind of legal and compliance requirements, people don't think too much about those things. So the more of those perspectives we build into the organization and the leadership and the boards, the better and the more sustainable and more sort of um, more, vers more, more protected will the business be, more, more viable will be the business model. I'll, I'm going to stop here. I think I can speak about it no. for hours. I'm sorry. But but you made you made so many, I think, really valuable points. Um, I think starting with the quotas, and actually I love the seatbelt analogy because I think actually it just describes the, the, the sort of like purpose of, of, of quotas in terms of just like, you know, building that initial momentum. But then I suppose, like you said, after 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 a while, the quotas themselves become irrelevant, right? Because it just becomes common sense. And I also agree with you completely that um, that diversity of opinion, that diversity of background and experience, I think is really important, you know, that you're sort of feeding that in like at all levels of the organization, right? And I think that sort of, um, that piece absolutely points to, for me, as a really good indicator of like the longer term success of, um, of, of businesses more generally. Natasha, keen to bring you in. What were your what were your thoughts? What was your reaction when you read this one? Yeah, similar reaction, obviously, from a certain perspective, really good news. Obviously the bar was pretty low to begin with. So it is progress. But I you know, I think from my perspective, we're seeing a lot of kind of gender diversity and all different forms of diversity at junior levels in financial institutions and also in lots of different corporates that have now quite strict hiring policies around diversity metrics. However, attrition remains a massive problem, particularly at the maternity stage. There's very little support for new parents, particularly mothers that are usually the primary caregiver, and it makes returning back to work and sustaining a really high-paced career very, very difficult. And that's a culture problem. And so when we have more women at the top and more diversity at the top, you know, we're able to think quite critically about what are the, the, the obstacles to more women getting to the top. And that is typically, it has to be said, you know, motherhood, as well as some of the points Irina mentioned around culture and communication styles. You know, on the VC point, this becomes, I think that the impact of diversity becomes even more patent because we have you know, 85% of male GPs and we have 1.9% of funding going to female-funded startups. And so you can see that you know, there's been lots and lots of evidence that the more female partners in a VC fund that there are, the more female-founded startups get funding. And so it's really important to, you know, and that will be across all sorts of other diversity metrics as well, by the way. And so it's really important that we encourage kind of diversity, but not just at the junior levels. It really needs to go all the way through the top. And I think previously there's been this argument of, well, let's hire in at the graduate you know, junior levels, and then over time, diversity will just kind of naturally you know, graduate through the ranks and, I think the quotas show that that has not been successful and that we do need these quotas to start actually impacting change. But again, on the VC fund, 
it's a challenge because even further up the chain, most LPs that invest into funds and fund managers are also male. And so more um, men have more successful LP um, fundraising and the, you know, the kind of will perpetuates itself. So there's still lots to be done. Um, but yeah, I do think it's a, a good step in the right direction. I agree that it is. And I think, look, you know, you mentioned about the, the sort of more women in those leadership positions and based on their own experience, being able to be more empathetic to sort of other women, I suppose, further down the chain and being able to put in place things like enhanced maternity, which I know was semi-recently announced by NatWest Group, headed up by Alison Rose. But I guess it's also the representation piece, isn't it, for the women, like, say, further down that chain, that can then actually look up and see a woman in that position and actually sort of aspire to it, right? It becomes a little bit um, a little bit more real. It feels a little bit more achievable. David, we've gone through this story so quickly, but I'd love to give you just the, the final words. What, what were your thoughts? Well, just to echo a little bit what you were saying about um, diversity of opinion, I mean, certainly throughout my career, I've noticed that less diverse teams in general have a much narrower opinion and perspective of what's in front of them, which means that they have blind spots all over the shop from their own organization, from the opportunities they have. And, you know, I faced into that from, you know, working in the creative and advertising and digital industry, selling in primarily to banks and financial services um, throughout my entire life, people in, in you know, suits and um, and very well-polished black shoes, and I rock up wearing wearing sneakers and a hoodie. I actually had one CEO of a very large insurance company remark at the end of a presentation I made to him. He was like, God, what's happening to the city? Good God, you're wearing sneakers, man. I was like, listen, I'm here to give you a different point of view, a different perspective, something that you haven't seen before from a place that you haven't been to. And I think, you know, financial services of all of the industries that that exist out there, insurance as well as is, is, uh, is terrible. I mean, Lloyd's of London was in the news um, and it has been in the news for, for, for many years about um, drinking culture and, and, and things like this. So financial services firms that don't embrace diversity, um, you know, do so at their own risk. And I think also from a venture point of view, I think it's, 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 it's really interesting that the blind spots will also exist in the kind of ventures that they should be investing into, the kind of places that they should be going. And, and I guess the outcomes that we deliver for customers, right? You know, I mean, if you're going to build better, more inclusive products, then you're going to deliver better outcomes and um, you just just generally deliver better experiences to consumers. So look, I completely agree. Again, could talk about this one all day, but I do have to move us on. This next story comes from Rest of World. So the headline is US tech firms are replacing workers with cheaper talent in Latin America. So Rest of World spoke to 18 entrepreneurs, recruiters, and developers in Mexico, Peru, and Uruguay all of whom acknowledge that the recent layoffs across the tech sector globally haven't freed up experienced developers for hire by regional companies. One of the major reasons for this, they say, is that although US companies are tightening their belts, their technical needs remain the same. This is leading them to look abroad for cheap programming labor. This poaching of talent has forced Latin American startups to become more creative in fulfilling their own hiring needs, from training junior employees to poaching more senior programmers from competitors. So Natasha, come to you, come to you first on this. I mean, it's an interesting trend, I guess. Is this one of the sort of longer lasting impacts maybe we're seeing from the pandemic? It is definitely. And, you know, remote working to a certain extent has really leveled the playing field for skilled developers all around the world to be able to contribute to um, 
you know, ultimately like really, really successful startups that may not have been you know, founded in their local countries yet. And I think, you know, this is a fantastic trend because ultimately you create more competition. It drives up those programming salaries that, you know, often these companies almost arbitrage on salaries, right, by going offshore. This enables them that they get a much fairer wage when there is competition. And ultimately, there's a massive potential for those you know, for those talented engineers to then go found startups of their own within their own home countries with those labels from kind of successful Western startups behind them. So, yeah, I think ultimately it can really create homegrown ecosystems within themselves. The flip side, of course, is um, when we work with startups that do offshore a lot of talent, they do feel like offshore talent. And I think that's a massive issue. There tends to be less visibility, less progression, um, and ultimately less loyalty to those companies that they're working for. And that, again, can create high attrition amongst those offshore talent base. So um, I think companies that are seeking to offshore a lot of talent to, you know, quote unquote, lower wage developer countries should think really carefully about how they're designing company culture and how they're designing company organizations to make sure that those employees do feel like employees and do feel really invested in the future of that company. Yeah, that, that culture point's a really interesting one. Um, David, keen for your, your sort of thoughts on that, I guess, building on building on that one. Yeah, I, I agree. I think overall, this is a good thing um, for a lot of these countries, even though they'll be facing short-term pinches in in supply of programmers and you know product owners etc cetera, etc cetera, involved in the in the venture in the venture process and the other thing that also that it does is it forces a lot of these companies to recruit and to find people to upskill and to train so you end up by getting a a, a ripple effect throughout the economy of more and more people getting involved in the tech industry by virtue of there being better salaries, by virtue of there being training opportunities and, and everything like this. So it's it's a very good way of, of, of upskilling in the long run. But in the short term, yeah, it's going to be very difficult for these startups in, in these countries to find the right kind of talent. And that's extremely frustrating if you're working in a small market. The talent pool is going to be small in the first place. Imagine if all of your engineers go go and leave overnight for a thirty percent pay rise. What what are you going to do? Yeah, and I mean it's 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 yeah. I mean the the differences in salaries actually are quite staggering. So according to Glassdoor, the average annual salary for a senior developer in the U.S. is around about one hundred and fifty thousand dollars. How that compares in Mexico, closer to about seventy thousand dollars, and and in in Argentina it's around about thirty eight thousand dollars. So actually we are talking about quite substantial differences. I guess, again, if I were to force a negative lens into the conversation, and Irina, you've drawn the short straw this time, I'm afraid. Um, how much does this concentrate, you know, all of that resource and sort of accessibility of all of that resource in sort of those wealthier, I suppose, Western countries? And are we then perhaps running the risk of losing out on the next new bank, for example? Well, I, I mean, I have a few, a few, few, few comments there. So, well, first of all, uh, the U.S. hasn't really started, or the global markets haven't, you know, the global hubs haven't started doing this, you know, recently. Yesterday, it was done forever. They have been poaching talent from India, setting up labs and remote teams in India, and you know, like getting engineers, flying engineers from Asia, from China, for all this time. So finally, they came to Latin America, which is actually a great talent pool, and I think there is only benefits coming from it. 
actually for both sides, so not just for, for the Latin American engineers and developers, but also for the US, again, coming from the same point of diversity of perspectives, there's so many amazing creative fintechs coming, uh, you know, that are founded, have been founded in, in Brazil and Argentina and Colombia. I've been following some of them. They're doing some of the most fabulous things in New Bank, Rappi, Neon. They have been quite a lot of really good case studies. So I think there is benefits, uh, you know, in some kind of lessons that even those engineers might potentially even bring into the US. With regards to uh, kind of hoovering the market and, 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 and seeing as challenges for the local uh, fintechs and local startups, um, well, first of all, I do generally believe in uh, creating kind of a borderless market. Well, I guess the benefits of the globalization and the remote working is that there's going to be growing, increasing parity, economic parity in getting access to opportunities and getting access to capital and getting to access to to work and to jobs and to kind of to, you know, to ability to make money around the world, which is something that we just all need to adjust to. Uh, and whenever, um, you know, when it comes to remote uh, collaborations, there is an obvious, uh, there are some upsides. You can learn a lot. You can become part of something global, something bigger, something that would be really uh, driving the, you know, the, the, the edge of, of the possible. But at the same time, uh, you're also a little bit, a little bit isolated from the rest of the team. So uh, people will be joining and then they will be coming back. They will be bringing the US insights and the know-how back onto their market. Um, coming back to the same point of uh, cultural diversity, I really think that the world, I don't know, really would benefit from more people moving around and sharing those insights between the regions. If I could decide, I would take the whole UK fintech community, make you you guys, all of us, pack our bags and move to, uh, you know, parachute people for, to, for a few months to Colombia and Brazil and Peru and Vietnam and Kenya, and actually just to learn from all of those experiences because the reality of those markets is that they are built on different rails, they are built on different patterns, the, the payments uh, experience and culture is different, the API infrastructure doesn't exist, uh, the CAC uh, and LTV kind of benchmarks are very different and I think it only just expands uh, everyone's horizon, so really nothing wrong with that. Economic kind of efficiencies is something that fintechs generally should be looking for. But with this, it come also fantastic benefits from um, the actual kind of uh, host markets, the Mexico and Peru and, uh, and all of the other markets that uh, these engineers live, live in. It's a, it's a terrific point. And I love how you've tied it back to our previous story and the point about that sort of diversity. I think that's really nice. And also, if you want to parachute me into Colombia, I am more than happy. That sounds, yep. that sounds Sign terrific. Me up. Exactly. <laughs> I'm there. <laughs> oh, I can parachute you to Kenya if you want. Kenya, Singapore, Vietnam, India, Bangladesh. Let's talk. <laughs> Anything that gets me away from the UK winter, I'll be more than happy. Okay, now for the section of the show called Big Click Energy, a quick fire roundup of some more click-worthy news this week. So just one from me and one from David this week. Um, mine comes from AltFi um, with a headline, Revolut is assembling a new team to address its workplace culture. So the UK's highest valued fintech is set for an internal shift as it tries to address the issues it has faced with its workplace culture. Well known for its no holds barred commitment to finding execution machines. That is a direct quote from the culture page of its website. Revolut is now assembling a behavioral team to help make its culture more human. The Culture Lab team will help bring in a new set of value-based behaviors. 
this new team is set to recruit three new team members over the next few months, an operations manager, an applied behavioral scientist, someone who reviews employee feedback data, and a designer. While Revolut has been struggling to secure its UK banking license for a few years now, the change has supposedly been brought in with the hopes that it will help stakeholders trust that Revolut has a healthy culture in place. So I guess whether or not this relates to Revolut's prolonged attempts to secure a UK banking license, I think has been widely speculated. It doesn't strike me necessarily as the point here, right? I think what's much bigger actually is building a sustainable business around a culture that brings the best out of team members and drives retention. For me, I think, you know, we've touched on this earlier in the show, but how you treat people really is a good indicator for the long-term success of the business. So I just hope that this delivers the desired results. David, over to you. All right. Big click energy. I'm at a serious risk of a Freudian slip here, Ross. Um, Don't do it. So mine is um, from Reuters. Amazon to widely launch Buy with Prime, says offering improved merchant sales. Amazon.com will widely roll out a feature by end January that allows online merchants outside its platform to use the e-commerce giant's payment and delivery services. This comes as the e-commerce giant takes on rising competition from Canada's Shopify. Buy with Prime, which was launched as an invite-only offering in April, will be widely available to US-based merchants by January the 31st, the company said. It added that the product has increased shopper conversion rate by an average of 25%. Prime members who pay $139 per year and drive most of Amazon's sales volume can buy products from these merchants by clicking the Buy with Prime button on their storefront. So my point of view on this is it's kind of no surprise that they're doing this, really. Uh, It's a bit of a no-brainer for them. They have 200 million Prime members worldwide. And during the pandemic, Shopify um, has started to eat into Amazon's market share in some areas. And so as much as as a new opportunity to capture demand from businesses that sell outside of Amazon, this is also a bit of a defensive play. But the the other interesting part of this is that the, I don't really know what to call it, the checkout button marketplace, let's call that, is extremely saturated, right? So you've got everything from Klarna doing the same kind of thing to Apple Pay to Google. It's a saturated market. I wonder how much this will really extend Amazon's stickiness into Shopify and some of the other platforms. We've got different types of behavior for shopping as well. So social commerce is now becoming a thing. People are selling on different types of platforms. So it's it's really interesting to see how much of this is actually going to um, grow Amazon, although the, you know, the, the conversion rate is definitely it's a no-brainer if you're a Prime member. Um, pressing a one-click uh, checkout on a on another website is uh, is super easy. The other interesting thing is um, Shopify have come up and said that uh, actually if you embed the Prime button on a Shopify website, you might well be um, violating their terms of uh, services, which is no surprise there. So yeah, it'll be interesting to see how this develops over time. Yeah, and Apple no strangers to violating terms of service when it comes to uh, <laughs> the checkout experience. So I don't think they'll be too faced. Okay, let's bring everybody back for the final section, looking at a more lighthearted story uh, from the last week. So this one comes from BBC News and is all about cake. The UK's Food Standards Agency chairwoman, uh, Professor Susan Jebb, has compared being around cake in the office to passive smoking. Interviewed uh, by the Times newspaper, uh, she says that workers should stop testing the willpower of colleagues. 
Professor Jeb, uh, also a professor of diet and population at the University of Oxford, was speaking in a personal capacity when she argued eating cake is a choice, but colleagues can help each other by providing a supportive environment. In many workplaces, cake, biscuits and sweets brought by colleagues returning from holiday or to celebrate last days and birthdays can start a scramble as hungry and sweet-toothed colleagues try to get their hands on the treats. Uh, it is a rare workplace that breaks the tradition and supplies a fruit platter. Guys, look, I'm going to be really honest. I don't know where to go with this one. Someone jump in and save me. It's not past the smoking because everyone gives in. So it's just like yeah. active smoking. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, it's offering people cigarettes. Yeah, exactly. it's, it's not. It's not passive. There's nothing not passive, passive about it. I'm going to come out in support of cake. I like cake. I'm often yeah. around it. Although I appreciate that eating a lot of it is extremely unhealthy. I can't resist the temptation, uh, and I am probably I would be anti cake and pro fruits. I have I had the options, just precisely because it's too much too, too much temptation. We shouldn't really underestimate the impact of our colleagues and our lifestyle and whatever the treats that they bring to the office is is. Oh. Is irresistible most of the time, especially when we are indeed hungry. It's a minefield. It is a minefield. Look, I think one of the good things about it being cake and that being almost a standard for what you bring in to sort of boost morale and do nice things for your colleagues is that you avoid some of the more perhaps creative office perks that we've seen down through the years, which according to our show notes actually includes a company that introduced something called Naked Fridays as, quote, a great way to engage their employees and build trust within the team. Also, because I had to actually, you know, click out and sort of look at this. Naked Fridays is exactly what it sounds like. No, really? It sounds like an HR disaster. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I just can't believe that that was a thing. But it builds trust, apparently, gauges the employees. <laughs> I mean, I don't know. I Look, I I quite like, you know, someone bringing in some sort of sweet treat or something. It brings people together Look, let's let's round off on a uh quick fire yes or no on cake arena i'm going to start with you no cakes yes to fruits okay david what do you think so pro cake but maybe less cake maybe maybe a limit yeah. maybe we should have legislation <laughs> for a limit on cake all right uh, natasha you're the tie break yes to cake yes and to cake there yes you go to, yes to giving me also a free gym membership to counteract so it's a it's a win-win <laughs> if there's more I like cake. It. So yes to cake, no to Naked Fridays. I think Strong no. Is, yeah, strong no. Strong yeah, no. Yeah, exactly. All right. Look, that feels like a good note to end. Uh, so that wraps up this week's news show. Um, thank you so much to today's guests. Uh, where can people find out uh, a little bit more about you guys? David, let's start with you. You can find me on LinkedIn at David BG. Um, uh, check out um, all the Explores videos that we've done recently um, on embedded finance and others. And also a shout out to our new um, report um, on embedded banking, which you should all go and check out. Yeah, really do check those out. Yeah, they are they are great resources. Um, Arena, over to you. Where can people find out more about you? I'm definitely most active on LinkedIn. Please do connect with me. Don't follow me. Connect with me, please. I really want to expand my network. Excellent. And Natasha? Yeah, likewise. Love LinkedIn. Um, and you can also find me on Twitter, Natasha Jones VC. 
Excellent. Um, and as for me, you can find me at Ross Gallagher07 on Twitter. Um, and thank you for listening. Uh, please do join the conversation on social media, email podcast at 11fs.com and find our mailbag link in the show description. Thank you very much and goodbye.